misconceptions on the nature of some things like the rapture and what happens when we die and life after death have maybe been formed by other places other than uh, rigorous biblical scholarship. I can remember my experience growing up. I grew up in a, a little country church up in northern BC, and we would have uh, prophecy conferences. And this is where people would come, experts would come, and they would plaster huge scrolls across the whole sidewall of the church. And they would have uh, points of reference on them and give names and dates and events from history. And they would stand up and say things like, well, clearly because you can see this happened, then this happened, and then right here, we're here today, and then the scroll would kind of come to an end. And so there were very clear pictures in their minds uh, and obvious connections to be made. So-and-so was the Antichrist, which meant that we could tell precisely where and when Jesus was coming back. Uh, And there was very sort of a sense of certitude about these things that you needed to possess if you got it right. Now, how many of you remember uh, maybe reading in uh, the 70s the bestseller by Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth? All right, this is a very popular book in the 70s, uh, and a lot of people in our church growing up went through it. Now, Hal Lindsey uh, thought that he worked super scrupulously to avoid kind of the prophecy scrolls, conferences, kind of dates and times, but it was pretty clear if you read the book that 1988 was the year that Jesus was going to return again, even though he never explicitly said that. And then fast forward a couple of years and remember around the year 2000, all of the hype that was coming and people were writing books and people were blogging and publishing all kinds of things about how the rapture was going to take place. And it just reminded me that that kind of speculation and temptation to speculation is not new, but it is a temptation in the sense that it's very easy for us to get distracted from what Paul seems to suggest is the heart of his argument in this text. See, in the first century, the idea had emerged that if you died before Jesus came back again to the earth, you were going to be kind of some second-class citizen. Uh, And those who were still alive We're going to have some special advantages or membership privileges that maybe you weren't going to get. And so the Thessalonican believers write to Paul and say, could you help us understand what's going to happen to those that are still living when Christ comes back versus those who have died? And so that's the questions that Paul is trying to address. And the vision that Paul wants to remind them of is the shape of life in the kingdom. And he tells them time and time again that this is about hope and about encouragement, not about speculative movement towards suggesting dates and times and linking different events together. Twice he says this is his main point. Any discussion that you get into about the events of Christ's return and his second coming should be something that leaves you feeling encouraged and hopeful, not anxious or speculative or fearful if you're a person of faith. So I think our first task here is to just explore and admit that there are some ways in which when we look at texts like this, we've gone off track. 
and acknowledge that there are some things that we may have deep interest in knowing, but the text itself is not necessarily designed to teach us or tell us. And this is frustrating for us as uh, post-enlightenment people. But I think it is helpful for us to take a few things off the table and say there are some things very clearly that this passage is not teaching us. So let's look at a couple things that the passage is not saying. So the first thing you want to remember when you're doing a serious Bible study is to examine and be careful about your own presuppositions that you're bringing to the text and questions that you come with or preconceived notions or ideas. And, th- and be aware of the fact that is this text designed to answer those questions that you're bringing? Did the author intend to speak to those at all? And this is one area where I think we get head up. Uh, we, got, we get uh, caught up, rather. Because if you or I were writing something like this, we would focus with a level of precision on things like a timeline and dates and questions about how and where and when all of these things would unfold. We would want it to kind of come to us a little bit more like a news story. But the original author, uh, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to a very different group of people with a very different set of concerns than we have. People that were not enamored in the first century with the same level of detail that we are. And so one of the first things to underscore is that this passage is not designed to help us understand a specific sequence or details or descriptions around Christ's second coming. It's written to a very specific question that they asked in the first century, and this first century audience is steeped in a genre of literature and a genre of understanding truth that is foreign to our minds and thinking. That's apocalyptic literature. It's culturally prominent from around B.C. 200 to about 100 A.D. And both Jesus and the Gospels in Matthew 22 and 24 and then Paul throughout some of his writings and John in the book of Revelation write in this genre that makes perfect sense to their original audience but often confuses and frustrates us. For example, in this text, Paul uses language in a way that is unfamiliar to us. He's using metaphors and images and themes from the Old Testament. Just one example, the notion of clouds in this text. So when we think clouds, we think white fluffy things in the sky because that's what we were taught to think about in terms of the definition of clouds. But readers of this text would not think about clouds as a meteorological phenomenon in any way, shape, or form. See, to them, they're steeped in a world when you say cloud, what that means to them is the presence of God, the presence of a deity abiding with his people. Think, for example, about the Old Testament and the children of Israel when they were journeying through the wilderness and God's presence went with them, it manifests as a cloud. And so for them, that's where their minds go 
When he talks about being caught up together in a cloud, it's a relational description, not a meteorological event or phenomenon. Or the trumpet, as a tool of summons, clearly and loudly and culturally, they understood that image as that's something that calls people together. So while their readers and the initial readers were thinking about those things metaphorically, we often think of them literally. So there'll be a blast on a trumpet, a, bl- a, a brass instrument, and we get hung up thinking, how would it be possible that one trumpet blast would be loud enough that we could hear it here in Langley, they could hear it in China, they could hear it in Lebanon, they could, how is that even possible? And so we're bringing our presuppositions to the text that the readers of this first century question and answer inspired by the Holy Spirit would not have in their minds. And so we need to be careful when we do that. Because Paul's focus here, and Jesus' description of the same events, uses the exact same cluster of images and word pictures. And they don't focus on the details. They focus on the outcome and on the result of Christ's return. It's big picture, not detail-oriented thinking. And so in some ways, it can be helpful for us to think about when we approach texts in the New Testament about Christ's second advent in the same terms that we think about and are much more comfortable with when we think about Genesis 1 to 3. There, the point in Genesis is the who and the what, not the minute details of the how. And so the who here, we know that Christ will come again. The what, we know that those who believe in Christ, who profess faith in him, will be with him forever. Beyond that, in terms of dates, times, trumpets, clouds, some of these things, we are not given to know the level of detail that we would love to know. The second place that we can get into trouble is on the other side of the same spectrum. So if you say, okay, well, Brad, that's interesting. He's talking in terms of metaphor and Old Testament images. Maybe the whole thing is just a metaphor, just a fluffy word picture for us to conjure up hope in our hearts. Maybe nothing like this will actually even happen in any way, shape, or form. I mean, come on, let's be realistic. Dead bodies coming back to life? What about those who have been eaten by sharks at sea? What about people who have been cremated and their remains have been scattered across various continents? How in the world is that going to happen? This sense of reconstitution or resurrection from the dead. Isn't that all just sort of wishful thinking to give people something nice to say at people's funerals? Well, I can appreciate honest skepticism, and good questions about things. So I think it is important for us to explore obstacles that people have. But Paul here is quite helpful in rooting this and helping us understand that we would be remiss or we would be, again, bringing a wrong set of presuppositions into this conversation if we just think this is all fanciful kind of metaphor. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, that we need to understand very clearly that this future that he's describing is not in any way disconnected from the past. 
In other words, he says, we believe in verse 14 as Christians that Jesus died and was raised to life again. Remember when we talked this last Easter about how this was written at a time when people who were eyewitnesses to these events could check it out and test and assess the stories and verify these events. And remember also that Jesus is not the only one who has been resurrected and brought back from the grave in history. In the gospel accounts, we have Jesus raising back from the dead Lazarus after he's been in the grave for several days. And then in Matthew chapter 27, verses 52, at the crucifixion, we're told this, that the bodies of many godly men and women who died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection and they went into Jerusalem and they appeared to many people. And so what Paul is trying to help us understand is the point that the very basis of resurrection hope is that God has done this before and therefore he can do it again. The future, your future, my future, is not impossible to guess at. We simply have to look at the past to get a sense of resurrection future and a glimpse of it. Because the text of the New Testament is clear that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave was a bodily resurrection. And so therefore, if God has done this once, he can do it again. So the last thing the text does not say, before we actually get to what the text does say, is the text in 4.13 says that don't grieve like people who have no hope. Now, some people have taken this a little bit offside and suggested that the Bible is saying that we should not grieve when someone dies. Now this is stepping far beyond what the text is saying. Paul says that we should not grieve like those who have no hope, not just don't grieve. But even if we're not prepared to take it that far, sometimes we fall into more subtle traps and ways and well-intentioned things and we'll say like, uh, well, maybe you'll just get over it and move on already after someone dies. Or, you know, they've gone to a better place, or you'll see them again someday, or we develop attitudes toward grief and loss that maybe are not helpful because a person is experiencing very real emotions and very real sense of grief and loss, like we talked about last week when we were around tables and stories that were shared that were powerful and that were meaningful. And so the scriptures are not saying don't grieve, just shut down your emotions in some way. They're saying don't grieve like those who have no hope. In other words, there will be a different quality or a different characteristic to grief for those who know Christ. And this is because the grave is not the end of the story. Because death is not an insurmountable barrier to God. The reason that we have hope, the reason this is true in the shape of life in the kingdom of God is formed and woven by a fabric of hope. 
Hope infuses every single part of kingdom living and thinking. And it infuses every part of a thinking about the nature of life and death and life after death. So let's flip the lens and ask, begin to ask what we can learn or what should we see that this passage is teaching us about life and hope. And in this, I'm deeply indebted to uh, scholar and author Dr. Michael Holmes. He wrote an excellent commentary on the book of First and Second Thessalonians. And so one of the things that he notes about Paul's vision for the future in a picture of heaven is that firstly, the future for believers is not so much about a place as it is about a relationship, a picture of hope is a picture for us of relationship. And here again, we get stuck and we want details and levels of details about things that the text is not quite trying to tell us. New heavens and new earth, will it be located up there? Will it be located down here? Will there be literal streets of gold, white robes? Will it really be a cube? How tall is it? How high is it? Paul doesn't go into any of those things. He simply says quite powerfully what you need to know about the resurrection is in verse 417 that we will be with the Lord. And then again, he repeats it in chapter 5, verse 11. The real hope of heaven is the promise that we can live with Christ forever. And here he draws upon this same image that the Old Testament does and that Jesus does. This image of relationship then is one rooted in readiness. The image of the notion that the event will come like a thief in the night means that we have to live and prepare our hearts and our lives and orient ourselves in a certain way because this is associated with the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, particularly in the Old Testament, is a day of judgment and a day of reward. And Paul picks right up on this theme in chapter 5, verse 9. And he says, be very careful then about how you live and your deeds, because the deeds of those who are evil and remain unrepentant will face judgment and wrath. But those who have embraced a right relationship with God, who are walking in the light and in the truth, and in that relationship with God, can expect on that day to experience the reward of a new expression of that relationship with the one who loves them. And that eternal relationship with God is the primary reward because it's closer and richer, and deeper, and fuller than what we experience now. And that's why Paul says things like his comment in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, I long to go and be with Christ, because this would be far better. It's not that Paul has some kind of death wish. It's just that he is acutely aware of the new dimension of relationship that awaits those who have a current and vibrant relationship with God and who die and who are in Christ. That's the reward. And the other connected truth that Paul is laying out for us here is that you and I then can have confidence to stand in that. We can know where we stand. 
And our confidence comes from a very different place than you might think. You see, a lot of people that I talk to are not confident in what is going to happen to them when they die. And they say things like, you know, I'm just, I'm hopeful, Brad, that the good things I've done in my life can outweigh the bad things in my life. And that then when I die, somehow God would look at those, weigh them in the balance and say, "Eh, 51% good, 49%, I'm going to let you in. And they ask then and become compulsive around questions. Like, did did I do enough? Did I avoid wrong stuff enough? Did I do enough good deeds? I mean, maybe I should try to help more Syrian refugees or maybe I should try and give more money away to the poor. There was that time in December 2015 where I walked out of Superstore and I walked past the Gateway of Hope Kettle and I had money and I didn't put it in. We can become obsessed with the wrong set of measurements for knowing where we stand. And Paul says you can have confidence, but your reference point is maybe not what you think. Look at first chapter five, verse eight and nine. Paul says your reference point is the confident hope that you have of your salvation. See, confidence comes not from what you have done, but confidence comes from what Jesus has done in the life and the death and the resurrection of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And when you and I, at a point in our lives, place our trust and confidence and our hope in Jesus and say, I trust you, God, with my life. I want to receive that gift of salvation that you offer to me, that gift of relationship with you that begins now and goes on forever. Paul says it's like a helmet to protect you because you can have confidence that you have placed your trust and faith in his work and you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and you live therefore as a son of the day, as a daughter of the day. We live, <coughs> excuse me, as children of God. And this is why Christians throughout history have placed their hope and their confidence and know with assurance where we stand. This is why Christians throughout the world, as they face persecution and suffering, even their own mortality can stand in those places with peace and with a sense of certainty. Because we don't confront our own death on our own resources, but on the basis of the redeeming and cleansing work of Jesus. Friend, let me say this to you. If you have never taken that step, if you have never said yes to Jesus, you've never said, God, I believe that Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave was sufficient to mark my life I place my trust and confidence in you. I want to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If you've never done that, today should be your day. I don't want you to go into a place today where you walk out and don't have that sense of assurance and confidence that you can know that you're a child of God. 
doesn't mean that those who walk as children of God never have questions and doubts. But we have ultimately a sense of assurance and confidence where we stand because we stand on the confidence of Jesus and his work, not on our own righteousness or merits. So the second part of this rooted and real relationship for the Christian means that death then is not an end, but it is a transition. And this is a very different view from many in our culture today who suggested at the end of your physical life, you cease to exist. There's nothing beyond your last breath. And this can breed either one of two things. One, it can breed a deep sense of cynicism or it can breed a deep sense of permissiveness that just says, well, if all I have is this life, then let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But the Bible is clear that we, you and I, are not merely a physical being having spiritual experiences, that we are created with our body, soul, and spirit, that we are a spiritual beings having a physical experience, and once this physical body is no more, once we draw our final breath here on earth, we do not cease to exist, we simply make a transition. In 1963, in the racially divisive southern United States in the city of Birmingham, Alabama, four young girls were killed by a racist who detonated a bomb. And Martin Luther King Jr. stood at their funeral state service and he made a profound statement of hope in the midst of tragedy. And he said this, I hope that you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to a more lofty significance. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness. It's an open door which leads the human race and leads man into life eternal. And so let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise be your sustaining power during these trying days. I love that phrase. For the Christian, death is not a period that ends the sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to a more lofty significance. And that's why a Christian funeral has a different tone to it and a different quality to it than those for people who have no faith. And that's why we can have confidence and hope in the face of loss and tragic loss of people whom we love. And it's not to say that the process of death or dying is blissful and peaceful. It's simply to say that death does not get the final word and therefore ultimately As a person of faith, you don't have to live with an overriding fear of death. Because it follows that if we go on living after we die, we need to think carefully about how we live in the here and now. This is the third implication that Paul teaches from this text. What we know about the future needs to shape how we live in the present. You see, we can live with a sense of anticipation, not apprehension. 
Not in a dark sense that we need to sort of help this event along or hurry it along in some way or hurry on towards the end of our earthly lives, but the sense that if our hope and our future is secure and our hope is in heaven, then we can live with confidence without being paralyzed by a fear of death and dying. Because Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the last enemy to be defeated, but it is not the final victor. And this is where he ends both of these segments in 4.18 and then again in 5.11. He says, so if all of this is true, then what you should be doing is encouraging one another in the way that you live. You should build each other up in the way in which you think. By doing what? How would we do that? Well, one way would be to spend our time in different ways. And that would be to spend our time in service and not in speculation. We need to stay clear-headed, Paul says, and sober about our lives. We need to avoid getting sucked in to worthless and useless speculation and drivel. Because our goal is clear. However much time that we have been given, we're responsible to steward it well while we still have it. And that's what I love about when I hear conversations around Jericho Ridge of people that are leaning into stewarding their lives in significant ways. I hear people talking and saying, you know what, if my hope is in heaven, I need to be about the business of showing and telling others that there is a hope. I want to be part of that. That's why people go down to House of Hope and serve. And next week we'll have Kim, the director, here with us to tell a little bit about what hope looks like in the lives of some of the women who are living in recovery there. It's what people respond when Curtis says, do you want to come with us to Guatemala and serve people who are poor there? People say, yes, because I want to spend my life in service to others in meaningful ways. That's why Ralph and a group of people are working together to help resettle Syrian refugees. That's why we spend our time doing things like this, not because we need to prove to God or others that somehow this is, we're worthy, but we're simply saying, God, you have given us an incredible gift, and that is not only your love, and the gospel to steward well, but also our lives and the resources. And so we want to steward those things well because we've experienced the love of God poured out into our own lives, and so it's our responsibility to pour it out into the lives and hearts of those around us. And this requires a balance. It requires a balance not only of showing and telling God's love, but also a balance of thoughtful um, conviction between short-range planning and long-range planning. Because some Christians throughout history have erred on the side of short-range planning and thought, okay, well, if God is going to come back, then we just need to sell everything we have and just give everything to the poor, and then we'll just be ready when Jesus comes. And then when Jesus doesn't come, they kind of look around and go, okay, we're kind of hooped now. What are we supposed to do? And in fact, some believe that there were communities in the first century, even in the New Testament, doing this 
and maybe even the church in Jerusalem, some people got a little over-anxious of this. So we've got to be aware of and careful about the balance between short and long-range planning. And one way to think about this is that we should conduct ourselves as if Jesus may return today, because he might. But we should minister and work and think also as if his coming may be delayed infinitely, or indefinitely, rather, sorry, which it also might. And so in that sense, it's helpful to look back maybe at my daughter Sophie's original question and say, what might actually a rapture readiness drill in your life look like? Well, maybe it would look like selling some things that you own and giving money to people who are in need this Christmas. Maybe it might look like spending time with someone who's lonely and making them a meal or simply sitting with them and listening to their story. Maybe you need to rethink your family vacation planning for 2016 and you need to talk to Daryl and Jody and say, we're going to come down and spend a week with you guys in Mexico and serve alongside of you. Maybe it might look like you stepping outside of your comfort zone and saying, well, I'm going to stretch myself financially and, and start setting aside money to give and support a wheelchair for Guatemala in 2016. Or maybe you're going to go to Guatemala, or maybe you're going to come with us to Tanzania in 2016. And these might seem to you like big things, but resurrection hope ought also to infuse the little things in our lives. How we speak to people at Heather's funeral service on Tuesday. How we care for each other. How we care for our world. How we use the resources that God has given us with wisdom in terms of what we buy for others this Christmas. Because what drives or ought to drive our actions ought to be questions that are different than those who don't share this hope and perspective. Questions that would ask us to say, if you knew that Jesus was coming back this afternoon, what would you do differently? If you knew he was coming back this week, would you organize your life differently? And it's a tough question to wrestle with, but it's one that will also look unique for each one of us. And so I want to invite you as we move into a time of response and Dustin and the team will come to just spend time asking God that question this morning. What does that look like for me? Perhaps you have an area in your life of sin that needs to be confessed and repented of privately. You would be embarrassed if Christ returned this afternoon and that area was still present in your life. So spend time repenting and asking God for his mercy and grace and forgiveness. Maybe you want to express your gratitude and your thanks and hope and lift that to God and express thanks for what Christ has done for you. Maybe you have a need that you want to share with one of our prayer team. And so Dustin and the team are going to lead us in three songs, and these songs are prayers. They're prayers of invitation, they're prayers of declaration, and so I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to sing and respond together around this theme and this issue.